0: Join me while I chat with people who've already done it, who've retired to something rather than from something. Let's find out together exactly what's waiting for us when we say goodbye to that nine to five. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Retirement. Today, I'm joined by Miles Wakeham, who refers to himself as a contrarian. He's never really followed the stereotypical uh, plan for, of going to school, finding a job, working till retirement. He's traveled all over the world. And at the young age of 57, he and his wife are embarking on yet another chapter of their life in a new country again. They're gonna be retracing Miles' past and they're gonna be p- paying homage to the past world of music and they're going to try to breathe new life into an age-old craft. Thanks for joining me today, Miles.
1: Wow, hi, how are you? Uh, That's a wonderful introduction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I said is you don't follow the the social norm of get a good education, get a good job, do it till you retire. Um, My main goal in this show is to show people or show the listeners that there are so many other things that they can be doing because life isn't ending at retirement and i think that you can probably tell us a whole lot about other things that uh, that you can be doing in life instead of retiring so um how about starting us off with how come you've been traveling the world all your life
1: well i'm originally from australia so that's where the accent comes from uh i guess i when you live on that side of the world, so far away from everything, it's really hard not to travel. I grew up in a city with about a million people in it. So you'd think that would be big enough, but being so far away from the rest of the world, you always felt like you were missing out that the opportunities of the world were sort of passing by you. And I was never somebody who really wanted to let opportunities pass by me. So at the age of about 24, I migrated to the United States and ended up living here for about six years before I had to go back to Australia to look after my my mother. And that whole process kind of seeded, I think, the the chapter that my wife and I are about to embark upon. But that's kind of where it all started.
0: And did you have any um, goals or any anything that you were actually aiming at doing when you left or you just wanted to see the world?
1: Well, I was cursed at a very young age of having a mother <laughs> that stuck a violin under my chin and then told me when I was five years old that, kid, you're going to be in the symphony orchestra one day. Well, my parents were concert pianists. And so that was kind of a pathway that our family had. Um, I didn't realize that there was a lot of, um, I guess, luck or talent or gift of music that was kind of embedded within my upbringing and what I'd seen from a very young age. So what ended up happening was that uh, she was right. By the age of like 11 or 12, I was in a symphony orchestra in my state, and I was a kid playing violin. And then that led into going to high school and sort of trading that whole skill set as a way to get through school without having to do anything. I mean, I literally, <laughs> I I just skated through that on music. I, I didn't need to study anything. And I guess that kind of gave me a weird perspective because by about the age of 15, I didn't really think school was offering me anything. It was almost like I'd already done my school when I was very, very young. And now it was time to go and actually do something real in the world. And that's kind of what got me out there. And because of music, I, the weird thing is when I came to the United States when I was 25, there was no, there was this like, the U S has this crazy immigration process and it's a process which, put you in really weird positions like in my particular case I had met a girl and we got married and as a result of that that meant that I couldn't leave the country because the second I did that all of the immigration process that had begun as a result of getting married uh, would be nullified and so if I was to step outside of the US I couldn't get back in for years so at that point I was stuck, so I stayed. I was in Los Angeles. I was in uh, Studio City, which is, like, next to Hollywood. And uh, she'd go off to work, and I'd sit around because I couldn't get – I didn't have a work permit. I couldn't work. And so that meant that I had to wait and wait for the government to do their thing, and that went on for about six months. And so I ended up wandering down Ventura Boulevard visiting all the music stores, right, because I'm music guy. <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm, like, reading those – billboard signs they've got in the guitar centers like band, you know, guitarist wanted or this wanted or whatever. And I ended up stumbling into that. This was in the late eighties and um, I came from the classical background. So I was kind of really atypical with the typical Hollywood hair band, sunset Boulevard crowd, which was the people that wanted all the musicians. Um, So I ended up doing some kind of really weird stuff and then, As a result of that, and then eventually I did start working, but I found myself in bands that were playing up and down the Sunset Strip. Um, We became resident bands in clubs that became quite uh, noteworthy later on. Uh, We were the the house band at a, a club in Sunset called The Central, which became The Viper Room because Johnny Depp bought it and turned it into his own speakeasy. And, of course, with that, we got kicked out because he wanted all his celebrity pals in there. So, um, But that's okay. Um, It was a great experience. But in the process, I got to know all the record label people and all the lawyers and all the publicists and all these people. And then I learned, because I'm a technical guy, I had a chance to work in recording studios. And so that's where this story gets really weird. So I um, was always a really um, active, avid, adventurous musician i had built a recording studio in my house that i had there and i was encouraging other musicians who i'd met in the clubs or just from you know knowing people in the scene to come in and uh the, back in those days you used to do a thing called a three song demo and it's what you would pitch to the recording labels to try and get your big deal your big break and you'd take three songs record them and send them with like a eight by ten black and white uh photo of the band or the artist or whatever. And studios, these guys had no money, right? Musicians were working as waiters and Denny's. I mean, they were not making money. So uh, they needed a cheap place to do three-song demos. So I opened up my home studio and said, "I'll, I'll do it. And next thing you know, all these people are coming in and I'm recording all of these artists. And I found out I was actually pretty good at it. And then eventually what happened was that the record labels who would get these three songs would see them all coming from the studio they'd discovered. And so they were calling me and going, well, could we possibly take some of our second-tier level artists, guys that we're about to sign a big record deal with, but we don't think they're quite there yet? Can we send them to you and can you clean them up and can you send us back, you know, recordings? I said, sure, if if you pay right? They rarely did. But anyway, and then that, what happened was I got to know the guys over at Capitol Records really well. And the next thing you know, they're sending me uh, these artists. And then then a, a, a couple of them became noteworthy, but most of them you'd never hear about ever again because they, they never got a deal. But then they would say, we've got artists who are already signed to other labels that we'd like you to engineer their records because we're hoping to kind of Coerce them to come over to us. Um, so I did that, and that put me in out of my little home studio and into these big Hollywood, you know, big studios with the. Yeah. And and here's a and I didn't have any formal audio engineering training. I'd learnt everything on my own. Uh, I bought the gear, learnt the craft, and I. But I've always been like that. I'm a very self-taught person. So I walked into this one studio I remember it was in um, it was in West Hollywood. It was called Grandmaster Recorders. And they had me recording a, a band there, uh, which was called Sensefield. Um, they were quite popular at the time in LA. They had a record deal, they had a couple of albums out, I think, and T- Capital were trying to entice them over. So I get this phone call. Can you do this recording session with these guys at the studio? I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I I walk in and this place is like, it smells of the seventies. I mean, you know, it's like stale cigarette smoke and and whiskey and uh, horrible. Um, But it had this old vintage console, what we call a Neve console, which is from Britain. And I find out the studios where Stevie Wonder recorded all this stuff. And then there's all these like hits of of stuff that's come out of Hollywood that was there. And I'm like in there with this gear and I'm having a ball, right? I'm like kidding a candy store. So I'm working out this console and then this band's like going to be there in two hours and I've never walked into the studio and I'm like, oh my God. So I traced everything and I kind of worked it out. And lo and behold, we did our recordings and they sound great. And I find out they end up on their album, you know, a year later or whatever. And then I know the, the guy who owns the studio, he's upstairs. This old guy, I, I guarantee he was a, 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 a fragrant alcoholic. <laughs> I mean, like this guy would just drink. And he came down sort of half sober and he, and he realized that in two hours, I'd worked out his studio. And he goes, holy cow, kid you know, would you like to do some sessions here? You you know, obviously you know what the, what you're doing. And I'm like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing, but you know, I worked it out and it sounds good. Um, I said, sure. So he starts booking me for doing other sessions for other artists that come in. And, uh, he books me for one in two weeks, a whole week, basically, or weekend a couple of days of doing this band that was coming in from out of state. And I said, sure, whatever, put me on that, on that gig. And, um, I get a phone call a few days later from Australia. My mother had been in a car accident and I had to go back to Australia to take care of her. And it's like at this point I'm sort of saying, oh, Jesus, this is an emergency. So, you know, call my my work and tell them I'm going to take some time off. I've got to do this. And and then other commitments. And then I called the studio and I said to the guy, look, I'm sorry, dude, but I've got a family emergency. I've got to go back to Australia to do this. And he's like, it's Okay. I'll get somebody. I've got another guy I can use. It's okay. You go do your thing. I did that. Basically at that point, I never returned, not for at least five years. I ended up having to to go there. It's a long story about a whole bunch of things that happened, but I went there. I didn't come back because I had to look after my mother and eventually she passed away. And then at that point I came back to California. And I didn't realize this until almost 20 years later, but I happened to be in uh, Mexico getting surgery, of all things. I was in Guadalajara, and I was recovering from surgery. And I'm in this one of these Airbnbs. This is only back in about 2019, and um, I am watching an interview with uh, a, a quite famous recording engineer and producer out of Hollywood, who's talking about all these bands and artists and whatever that they did, and he talks about the fact that they recorded the first or oh, well, the major, the first major album from the Foo Fighters. So probably know what the Foo Fighters is. Um, and I'm I'm looking at this going, what, what dates? And he says, it's like 1994, 95. I'm like, that's when I was there. And he, where was it recorded? Oh, Grandmaster recorders. I'm like, oh no, what, what date? <laughs> It was the damn band I was supposed to be recording. Oh, no. Right. I came that close (laughs) to actually having something on a resume that would have propelled me into the career that my mother wanted me to have, and that would have been music, but actually to be able to make money because I'm technical. I can work on either side of the glass in a recording studio, and that would have been my calling. But what ended up happening now is that I've got a family, I've got a daughter on the way. I moved back to California with my new wife and my, and my family. And all of a sudden I had to enter the world of software, which is what I was trained to to do. And I've spent 40 years working in that field. And, you know, it's like, it's like anything when you have a career in something, particularly if you're like a business person, like you, you know, you build your own business, there's this kind of fiction you get in your head that when you want to retire, whatever the hell that is, that you'll sell the business and some guy will come in and give you a million dollars and it will go off and live in the Bahamas right well it doesn't work when you're in technology and i i, I try to tell i tell the kids these days right <laughs> go work in software because you think you're going to make two hundred thousand dollars a year working at google you are obsoles obsolete the day you arrive and unless for the rest of your working career you want to be continuously relearning your the programming languages you're working in, the technology, you will be made obsolescence by accelerated entropy. And there's not a thing you can do about it. And when you get to that ripe old age when you don't want to do this anymore, no, you're not going to have anything other than the money you saved because your skills are only as relevant as the last 12 months or 24 months that you were using them because old farts don't work well in the computer business, right? (laughs) We don't have anything to offer. You want to be new, latest, greatest. This is the world of technology and entropy. This is how it works. Well, I I discovered that because 20 or 40 years of working in that field ended up meaning that I was always working. I never stopped. And it wasn't until I, I realized the power of buying assets and letting the assets pay me to own them that I started realizing that there was a counterbalance to this world of never stop working all the time. And, and at that point, I didn't have to work anymore. So I kind of shifted myself into an investor mindset away from being a a creative person. And I thought for the last 20 odd years, this is great. You know, I don't have to work, whatever, but there was this one thing in the back of my mind all the time, this missing link, this, this um, void, I wanted to be a record producer. I wanted my career in Hollywood that I had at the, you know, in the palm of my hand and I couldn't grab it. And that, that's the emphasis, that's the uh, catalyst that created the next chapter of of our lives going forward.
0: So you can't leave us hanging there. You, uh, (laughs) you've gone through that. You've spent your, your, you know many years doing technology and software and things that made you have to keep learning and have to keep going but you've got a goal you've got a you've got a driving force and that's that making that record so how are you going to do that
1: well it's very interesting cuz i got out of recording at a time when the industry did what we used to call analog recording and that would be that you would have old school stuff you have a big recording console and a bunch of mics and a special isolated room and a big tape machine and bam within there and you had to hit the record button go record it and then afterwards they'd get out of the room and you sit there and you'd mix it and there was your record and that was the way it used to be done it's been like that since the Beatles and it's been pretty much that way. But right at the time when I got out, the industry was switching over to digital recording that we're moving away from this old school method and doing more things with computers and automation and things like that. And um, so I ended up in this really weird situation. All of my training that I'd learned was on analog was in the old school ways. And then this digital world came along. And then for 20 odd years, I didn't work in that industry. I, I kind of, didn't want to get near it because I knew that the draw would be too strong. And it was taking me away from the, you know, trying to feed my family and everything. And I, I I didn't feel right. So I put it aside. And then one day I realized now, you know what? I don't have to work anymore. I've got enough money. Um, I'm fine. And, I want to get back. Maybe I want to do this recording thing. Maybe I want to give this a second shot. I'm 57. Okay. Maybe time for a career change. It's not retirement because I never really had anything I wanted to leave from, right? I enjoyed my technology work up until I didn't. And then I did something else up until I didn't. And now I want to do this because I just want to do it. I don't, it's not work. It's not retirement. It's not, and end to one thing, it's a start of another. And I'm always looking forward to what's in front of me. I don't, I don't, I can't drive a car looking in the rearview mirror. I'm gonna crash the damn thing, right? I have to be able to look forward. And that's something that was really interesting because I I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like this. You get this mindset that every day you go to work and you're in the cubicle and you just hate that job and you hate that commute and you can't stand your boss and you barely can put up with your workmates. But you're in there because you need to earn a buck because there's this, this, this golden ticket out there that you can't get like the carrot dangling in front of you. It's called retirement, right? And we race to it. And we, we, you know, we do everything with the, it's okay. Cause soon I'll be retired or it's okay to work in this crappy government job. Cause I get a pension, right? What a freaking sellout. Why would you sell out your one and only life for that? How about you have your one and only life that you never need to escape from. And therefore you don't need to retire. And that's been my, since I was a kid, it's been my mantra. And as far as the studio stuff goes, the weirdest thing is that uh, living in Arizona where I do, uh, we are bordered with Mexico and my wife and I would constantly jump the border and go down and, you know, hit hit the beach and get tacos and whatever. And um, that expanded into exploring central Mexico and learning about the history of the Spanish conquest and the, you know, previous tribes behind. And I, I love history and, and just the, the, people are so creative and artistic and, and just, uh, it, it it amazes me that we don't celebrate what they can bring to the table because it's absolutely beautiful. And one day we ended up in central Mexico and we stumbled into a town called San Miguel de Allende and we ended up falling in love with the place. And over years of, of going back and forward all the time, we ended up buying a big acreage of land, um, and surprisingly, no one wanted it because it had a bull ring on it. Yeah, a bullfighter owned this land. He had a matador school on it. And we bought this compound, this acreage of land with these big 30-foot walls around it, and immediately decided to destroy the bullfighting ring and turn it into the house of our dreams. But an acre of land's a lot. I mean, it's more than I need. And so the idea came up, what what, what if I built the recording studio I wanted? If they, if I couldn't get the career because somebody in Hollywood wouldn't give it to a 57-year-old who hadn't worked there for 20 years, well, damn it, I'll build it myself. So I thought there's one thing that I learned about this when I left music and 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 the world it is today, and that is musicians didn't act the same as they used to. And I kind of... People would say to me, oh, there's nothing on the radio or whatever. And I'd say, yeah, but because you're, you know, some old fart. And you only want to listen to what you liked when you were 25, right? But no, actually, they have a point. The problem, the thing with music is that musicians speak a, a language between each other. When they look into each other's eyes, they can sense what's going on and the language of music. And you, you notice, like, if you see these concerts on stage and the lead singer is, like, going off and he decides he's just going to go off on his own and, and doing the band somehow got to follow, you know. There's an innate subconscious communication going on between all the band members that actually makes that work. And it's most noteworthy in things like jazz music where there is no script. Everybody's just playing off each other. They're communicating with each other, right? That has the risk of being lost, when uh, a music today is created with somebody with a laptop and a little portable keyboard and uh, some headphones on and they think that's music. Well, to some degree it, it probably can be. But there's an, a whole world of communication and socialization and, and human anthropology, which is the music that we all resonate with. And I couldn't find it when I went back. Into that world, it's like it, it went, it it disappeared. So I thought to myself, you know, I'd like to bring it back. I love the idea of music musicians getting together and creating something as a as a team in the room, in this in the moment. You know, it just needs somebody to be able to record it properly. And although there are many recording studios that are out there, the problem is they all suffer from the same problem, and that is they're in these. Um, Busy urban cities, uh, very stressful traffic and, you know, noise and car horns and and, and musicians don't react well to that. They're they're like great painters or artists or writers, authors. They want a quiet place to be able to do it. So I went back in time and I thought, you know, I'm not the only guy to realize this. There are so many things that happened in time that go back to, periods of time in music, which were kind of renaissance periods, the sixties, the seventies, even the eighties. And I looked at the whole story and realized, you know, if I was to build a studio that's in this faraway place that, you know, you have to make an effort to get to, but it's going to be this haven of creativity, this, this destination spot for artists. I can't be the only person who ever done it. And so I discovered in history the work of sir george martin he was the producer of the beatles and he had in the 80s built a recording studio in the caribbean on the island of montserrat and it was very very famous because from that studio came most of the last well the last most famous albums from the police um, all the work of Rush, Jimmy Buffett uh, The Rolling Stones reformed and recorded there Elton John re- reform, uh, recorded there Stevie Wonder recorded there I mean the list goes on, 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 on And, and the bit most noteworthy one was Dire Straits They recorded their, um, uh, what was the album? The one with Money for Nothing on it Anyway, it'll come to me Anyway, they recorded everything there On this little island in this crazy house converted into a studio that George Martin put together. And then I found out that by researching it, there were documentaries made about this. There was video footage, there was photos. And so what I did was I studied it and I thought, how did he do it? Because that's what I want to do, but I want to do it in the 21st century with the current technologies in San Miguel. And it was difficult because this island where the studio was was destroyed by a volcano in the middle of the nineties. The studio itself wasn't, but it was cut off from the rest of the town. So all of the power, the water, the gas was all, it, it was in what they called the exclusion zone. So it was no longer functional, but I still wanted to know about it. And so I ended up contacting the minister of tourism on the island who couldn't believe that somebody was interested in celebrating their past and their history. And through him, he put me on to people who were in the music scene at the time. And in fact, a guy who was George Martin's right-hand man, Now, George Martin passed away in I think 2017, 2018. So I can't really ask him, (laughs) but his right-hand man is still there. And he still lives on the Island. So I ended up, um, Trying to uh, put to get piece together the whole backstory behind this, and they invited me to go there. So yeah. I'm I'm going to visit the studio. I'm going to do all of that stuff, and then I'm going to take an exact replica of their room and build it in San Miguel, and then fill it with the latest technology and the latest gear, and have the career that I was not able to have back in the mid nineties. And that to me, I guess people say, is that retirement? No, that's what I'm doing. I'll probably do it until the day I die.
0: I guess it depends. That's, that's your beyond retirement, which is why you're here. It's, I guess so. (laughs) You're retiring to something new. You're, you're moving from one thing to another. And I think that's perfect. I have two questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one is, do you, how are you going to promote this so that people musicians all around know to come to san miguel to uh, to record with you and the second one for the people who are listening who are saying well this is great for you you've obviously got some money if you're buying property and you're going to build this wonderful recording studio but how does joe blow make a life out of living beyond without having a job for the first part of their career
1: Mm. Well, it, it answer to your first question, it's a build it and they will come kind of model. And, <laughs> and it does seem to be working because when I talk about the history, particularly if I talk with some passion about it and why yes. I'm doing it, every musician I talk to goes, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yep. I want to go there. I want to come. When, when are you open? When can I come? And I've already had major Nashville stars who are wanting to come to San Miguel record. I've got friends of mine still in Hollywood that I can work with. And I'm reaching out to the guys at air studios in London to try to say that I'm trying to pay homage to the past of your history. Maybe there's a connection there as well. I don't know. I'm not trying to threaten anybody, but I'm trying to be respectful of the past. And every time I've done that karma, has a way of rewarding you back. Um, and so I, you know what? I don't really care actually. I mean, I'm going to build a great studio and even with the local artists that I can record there, I'm going to have a whale of a time. And I'm going to feed my musical needs and that's okay. But I would love to help other people out and to offer this as a sort of a potluck for anybody to come and join in and come to San Miguel and enjoy it. So, so that, that's the first question you had. The, the second question Um, This is a weird one. I believe personally that if you want the individual freedom that I've been lucky enough to enjoy all of my life and been demanding of it, you know, it's it's part of the reason why I travel, it's part of the reason why I do those sort of things. I also believe in the old Stan Lee Spider-Man line, and that is with great power comes great responsibility, and what I mean by that is that I'm not Doctor Who. I can't go back in time. If somebody in their 30s or their 40s didn't start saving or investing or, or doing what they could and they just followed that social mantra and they effectively got swindled, I'm not the guy who can fix that problem, right? Sometimes in life you have to make the most out of what you've got. Um, I remember back when they went to war in Iraq, there was this line that, you know, you go to war with the army you've got. And I think that in this particular case, you, you, you have a life with the person you've, you are and you, you take with it the resources you've got. I, I was almost killed in a car accident in 1995 when I went back to Australia and I was disabled. I I had only about half the use of my, my shoulder was completely destroyed and my other leg was shot. And, and I had to go through a process of about three or four years to rebuild myself, but that's on me. I didn't expect anybody else to be responsible for that. And it was up to me with how I spent my time. I wasn't going to be I wasn't going to learn the secrets of the trade by reading my smartphone all day or watching YouTube videos of somebody else's experience doing it, or, you know, just yelling at the political party of my, you know, of uh, the, you know, you know, how it's right. This is how people spend their time. I, I can't, life is precious. It's too precious. And if, if you are willing to trade away time like that for those stupid distractions I can't, it's good, I don't want to sound wrong, but I don't have pity for somebody who does that. I don't because there is every reason in the world not to, and they choose that path. And then at some point in life, when they have that, they come to that age where their body starts giving out and they got the bad hip and they, you know, they do all of the, the stuff that they think is how life is when you're 60 or 65. And they realize they look down at their bank balance and they go, I can't retire well, you shouldn't be even trying to in the first place. You should have thought about your life as a, a marathon, not a sprint. That the, There's this perpetual nature that we all have to live until the day our body gives out on us and not to squander that. Um, you know, I, I, I was speaking with somebody recently and I broke life up into four quarters. And it's easier to think about it when you break it up this way. You think about the first quarter, So let's say for an average U.S. male, life expectancy about 77 years. So let's say 80, let's say the first zero to 20 years, right? So that's when you learn how to walk, talk, communicate, socialize, learn, and you start getting an identity about who yourself is, you know, what, what you're about. And then that second quarter, that 20 to 40 years, is what I call the building quarter where you build a career, you build a family, you build a home, you build a life, you build an identity. And then that third quarter, 40 to 60 is kind of the optimization phase where you take whatever you've got, your skills, and you optimize the wealth that you've been able to get from that. And then that final quarter, that waiting quarter where your body starts giving out on you, you just hope that you did everything up to that point that can sustain you through that. If you think about things that way, it all starts connecting the dots. The problem is that you don't get a second chance, right? If we screw up, it's on us and we've got to fix it. And I can only, I mean, I raised, a, a, my daughter's 24 and I try to explain to her the, the fragility of life and how every little moment that you've got has to be um, embraced and it has to be understood and you have to take from it every single little thing you can get from it because you may never get that moment again. And my life has been about, I I never want to look back on my life in regret. I think that's the most evil thing in the world is to have regret. Um, And that's why I'm doing what I do is because I never want to live in regret. But so many people at younger ages do crazy things that they realize that They think it's real punk rock to go and get tattoos or to do this or to try drugs or do whatever. And it's like, you know what? All power to everybody do what you want to do. I I want you to have freedom. I want you to have choice, but with great power comes great responsibility. And unless somebody understands the longevity of a decision, they make at a young age, unfortunately I can't help them. And so therefore, I don't know if somebody can't have this future like I've had, I, I don't know what to tell them other than I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. I guess that the, what you're saying is, is, you know, basically everything has a price and the choices you make come at a price too. If you're going to do a, you might not get to do B and you've got to decide at each juncture, which choice you're going to make.
1: Right. Um, I do believe there is a sort of a sense of, of fate and karma, which follows a lot of the things that we do. Yep. And yep. I've always been somebody who tries to have a very ethical, um, positive attitude in life. At the same time, I've been around the block so many times that I know what threat looks like. I, I know what adverse situations are like. I know how to handle myself in those things. So it's not like I go in naively, but at the same time I feel like if I can positively influence people, it tends to come back on you. I don't yeah. think I don't think people study that much. I mean, if you're a Buddhist monk, you probably see see this all the time because it's part of your teaching. But for most of us, we are so in the moment of, well, I've got to pay the rent, I've got to make the car payment, I've got a credit card company coming after me. And, you know, and we're all dealing with defense, defense, defense. And none of us sit back or like the coach and strategically plan out what we can do to avoid those situations in our lives, often until we're much older and sometimes it's too late. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's, that's welcome to life. That's how it works.
0: That's it. Exactly. I think we could, I think we're probably on the same page and we could probably talk about it for hours. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time left. I did look at your website um, be unconstrained. I really like that. And a lot of the philosophy that you've got throughout it um, rings very true with me. I don't know where you were 30 years ago in my life, but I wish, I wish I'd run across it at that point because my life would probably be a lot different as well. Um, Is there anything you'd like to share with people just in closing before we go?
1: yeah i will say something that is a good takeaway um particularly for anybody younger who or somebody who has a little bit of runway left in their working career or maybe i shouldn't say working career but their their earning career um uh, when uh, coming from australia we we everyone lives on the coast right because it's a desert and that's where the temperate climate is and um one of the things you do when you're growing up there is you tend to swim and go to the beach and it's a very outdoor kind of mindset. And for me, I took up uh, surfing when I was a kid and I did that because all my friends did it. They had a VW micro bus and we all went to the beach and we went surfing and we thought we were all, you know, really hot surfers. No, we weren't. We were useless, <laughs> but I learned more out there in the ocean battling nature and the waves about life than i ever learned in school and even to this day more than i probably ever learned participating in life and th- and that is that there are things in the world that come in sets waves particularly and there's this concept i guess it's a universal concept of, of balance between north and south yin and yang up and down we see it in in all forms electricity sine waves alternating current we see it in sound resonances about waveforms and we see it in the the patterns of the sun and the moon and sun comes up sun goes down there's always balance and i learned that in surfing because you learn very quickly that you as an individual cannot battle universal nature and the, the way that the universe works you'll never beat the wave you can get angry because you didn't catch that wave and so what are you going to do punch it Really? <laughs> I think it's gonna kick you in the in the back of the head when you least expect it. And that's that's nature. We have to learn to be synergistic with it. Because once you start understanding that concept, you understand that if you're ahead of the wave and you start paddling, it'll see you and it will pick you up like a friendly part of its own journey and it will give you its energy and and with that it becomes this sort of transformative experience that it's, it's, if you talk to surfers, they'll, you know, they're, they're, it's like a spiritual thing for them. Um, I learned that young. And when I learned that I sort of looked for patterns and what I could see was that waves go up and down, everything balances. And if I could time where I was like the surfer times the wave to catch, I could do really, really well. And then I would be able to enjoy the natural energy of the universe I've used that technique in investing and it has made me millions and millions of dollars. You never buy something when it's already upon you, like the surfer can't catch the wave that's already breaking on them. And you never buy something when it's past you and you look on the horizon for the next one that's coming, and well before it comes to you, that's when you engage. That's when you start paddling, and then if you've picked the right thing, it'll pick you up and give you the ride of your life. I've done that with real estate. I've done that with Bitcoin. I've done that with stocks. I've done that with pretty much everything, and that's why I can afford to do the sorts of things that I do today. Now, it's not a perfect science, and you have to be willing to be sensitive these things but with those skills which i was lucky enough to learn when i was in my teenage years with those skills you can do fine in pretty much any situation there's one thing that i i will leave your audience with and that's a simple statement um and it applies to people looking at their retirement before they get to that point and it's simply this the rich don't have jobs If you think about that, it'll answer all the problems you ever have in life. If you have a job, you're not going to be rich pretty much, and that's how it works. If you are investing and you can understand the concept of waves and patterns and you can predict things ahead of time, it's very, very easy to buy something when it's cheap and very easy to sell it when it's expensive and you make a lot of money on the arbitrage. And that's what worked for me.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, Miles. I've really enjoyed talking to you and I think you've uh, shared a lot of really interesting things with the listeners today.
1: Right. Well, I'm glad. And uh, you know, uh, hopefully they'll come over. We're over at beunconstrained.com uh and we'd love to see anybody over there. There's a lot of information that we share. It's an open source world and that's how it works for us.
0: <laughs> and that's it for this episode of beyond retirement. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed it. Are you ready to start rocking your retirement? Head on over to www.beyondretirement.ca forward slash rocking it and sign up to plan out your own roadmap for retirement. Don't wait till it's too late.